Um, so I, I, I think I mentioned in one of our like earlier episodes that nobody here is a professional podcaster um, and I'm doing the editing myself. So I was like, you will hear background noises. I think you hear my daughter on the our intro <laughs> screaming in the back. So I love it. I yeah. Love it. I love it. It's organic. Yeah. It's organic. <laughs> I mean, you might hear the newborn crying in a little bit, actually, too. So, um, do you have a daughter and a newborn? Yeah. Um, so what's your what's the what's the name? Daughter is uh, she's Linux, um, and then the newborn he's Langston. Oh, Linux and Langston, I love yeah. that. Isn't it great? I love that. How new is Langston? Four weeks tomorrow. Oh, super new. Yeah. New, new. Thank you. So yeah, your boy is tired. And so that's why I was like, <laughs> I, I understand you when you say a scatterbrain. I mean, not to mention that Blur's day makes it, you know, yeah. enough. <laughs> what is today? Hold on. Now you mean, it says Monday. Look, you think me? I was like, wait, today's Thursday? That's how it starts. Yep. All righty, you guys set? Yep, let's go for it. All right. Welcome to the Chill Spot Radio. I am your host, Jared, my co-host. This is Dr. Alan Lipscomb. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back to uh, episode 10. Um, Happy New Year if uh, you celebrate. Um, I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. Um, This is a very exciting episode. We have uh, Yolo Robinson, uh, founder of uh, Beam. Uh, We actually had uh, one of his colleagues here uh, previously on one of our episodes. Um, So, you know, Really excited to have you here, Yolo. Uh, please introduce yourself. Hey, hey! I was I was thrown off when you said I'm excited to have someone here. I'm like, wait, is somebody else here besides? Oh, okay. I was like, wait, who's here? Somebody else is here. <laughs> no, but um, my name. Hi, everyone. My name is Yolo Akili Robinson. I am the executive director and founder of Beam, the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. I'm also a community worker, healing justice worker yoga teacher for about 15 plus years now doing a variety of wellness and mental health support for our folks so yeah i'm excited to be here wonderful we are are so excited yolo to to have you it's been a couple of months in the making to 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 say the least and you know myself and jared we were talking amongst ourselves about you know the 10th episode because this is a milestone um, that we something that started off as an offshoot to our program that we do at CSUN, the Minority Male Mentoring Program. And we didn't, you know, I didn't think that that we would be doing, you know, one, two, three, four, you know, now we're at our 10th episode. So we were thinking about guests and your name kept coming up. Um, I was the one that kept bringing up your name um, because of my experience with Beam and with you over the summer. And I was like, yo, we need to get YOLO on the podcast. And so we are excited to, to have you as our um, 10th episode guest. Hey, hey. I wish I had some sound effects. Okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, I whole, hey, hey, I was very, I'm very honored. I felt the same way about you, um, Alan. Like when you came, I was like, Alan is, we got to get Alan to do more stuff with me. And so, yes. Very mutual. Excited to be here. Yes, yes, yes. So, tell us a little bit about. 
been, how it started, you know, a little bit about yourself. How did it birth into existence? Well, about me, I like long walks on the beach. No, I'm so BEAM, of course, stands for the Black Emotional Mental Health Collective. We are a national training, movement building, and grant making institution dedicated to the healing, wellness, and liberation of Black and marginalized folks. Um, BEAM really comes out of my experiences working in public health and community health and seeing all the gaps that I saw at the intersection of mental health and wellness for our people. Um, and I saw those gaps in a lot of different places, right? I saw them when working with men and boys who um, enacted violence or who are like were um, uh, under under my care of uh, my care of this program that I did around um, a batterers intervention, excuse me, is what I call it. Um, I've also seen in the context of my work supporting people living with HIV, supporting people struggling with substance use. And um, I wanted to create an institution that could speak to those issues. I wanted to speak and create an institution that could fill in those gaps, the considerable gaps um, that I felt like were happening where one, I saw a lot of folks were, there's this assumption that like the dominant Western model of mental health was going to really transform our communities. And I didn't see that as a, as a reality, right? I saw that the vast majority of people in our communities were not going to therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists, not only because they weren't accessible to them, but often those weren't the people that they trusted to get their kind of mental health information. And the people they were getting that information from often had inaccurate information or were often stigmatizing mental health, you know, misrepresenting things. And so I want an institution, which is really, this is really kind of the heart of being, that would train and support people in all aspects of the village, but to, um, to one, to not only uplift the, the skills and qualities that we already have that are really working in terms of healing our communities, because we do have those. I always start there. We're not a deficit community. Like we have skills and talent and strengths and um, that we're doing that are helping heal our community, but also to help refine those skills too, to help to, to refine them so folks can be um, able to get more care when they need. And so that kind of like is the summary, like the short version of why being and why I felt it was important. There's a story that I often tell about um, an advocate in the South who talks about her story, living with bipolar, getting diagnosed. Um, and because and after getting her diagnosis, her faith community, her Christian church community, as well as her family telling her that it wasn't real, that it was like something she needed to pray out. And for years suffering because of that. And it wasn't until one day she was sitting down with her stylist getting her hair done. And somehow that conversation came up and, her, and she tells with her, like, you know, my family, you know, they, they said I was bipolar, but my family was like, no, that ain't real. And her stylist was like, well, hold on a minute. Like, you know what I mean? Because my sister, like, you know what I mean, is living with bipolar. And let me tell you what she went through. And she, you know, she's doing all right right now. And it was that one intervention that led her to get into care and change and transform her whole life. And so the stylist didn't have no license. Like she had not, she didn't study mental health, right? But she had the knowledge enough from experience to be like, this messaging you're getting from your church and your family, that ain't, that don't sound quite right. Let me offer you an alternative. And I think that's the heart of the core of what we need to be doing more in our communities, building and building up the folks who people trust to have skills and tools. And so like, that's a really a big part of being. I love it. It, it, it kind of reminds me of like a mental health first aiders uh, don't have to specialize in mental health, but they can be there or, you know, a lot of works that have been done in the barbershops um, around voting yeah. and uh, mental health and things like exactly. that. Exactly. And it comes in some ways, um, our Black Mental Health and Healing Peer Support Training, which is essentially that program, 
um, is really in response to this issue, but also kind of speaks to some of the gaps that mental health first aid doesn't have, right? So one of my biggest beefs doing mental health first aid with young people was like, this is really diagnosis centric. I do not need these kids trying to diagnose people. And you know, there's all these stories you probably can find on a lot of people saying, you do them in high schools and people are walking around, you got bipolar and I did this because you had two weeks. It's like, that actually creates more stigma and more shame and more yeah. isolation, right? And so one of the things we did when we designed our program was it's not diagnosis specific, right? Like we talk about symptom, symptomology, symptomology, we talk about symptoms, but we don't tell people like, this is how you can tell with somebody bipolar because that's not your job to do that, right? Yeah. As a peer support person, that's not your role. Your role is to recognize when someone's distress is outside the scope of peer support and get them into care if needed. Right. And so I think that that was a big thing that we saw with mental health first aid, as well as the fact that mental health first aid is deracialized, no gender, no historical context. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in yeah. There, right. <laughs> and, you know, a big part of our peer support training is we start off by naming harm is happening and it's still happening through the interconnectedness between the prison industrial complex and the mental health industrial complex. So that harm is still very real. You know, we don't minimize it. We don't erase it. We create space for people to talk about their fears. And, you know, people say things like, I never forget one of the first trainings I did, um, a brother just said, every time I hear mental health, I see the social worker who took my cousin away. That's the direct association that I have. And so if that's your direct association, if I don't take time to help you breathe and process that, anything else I say ain't going nowhere. It's going out the ears. Like, I ain't even trying to hear you, bro. So I think that... um. In some ways, we want to create really a, a healing justice, a racial justice, gender justice program that was centered in our community to help us have skills and tools that were useful to the village, not so much, um, you know, focusing on diagnosis and focusing yeah. on all those pieces, you know? Absolutely. Now, not to steal from your, your, your thunder or anything, but at uh, my community health center, that's one of the things that I'd like to do is get away from that, like having to always diagnose and trying to build like a, or decolonize, you know, our mental health system here. You're not feeling my thunder. That's let's that's thunder together. Let's, that's that's it. That's exactly what we need. Yeah, let's be a collective lightning bolt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, one of the things that that you were saying right now that really connected with my core um, over the summer when I first experienced Beam is that of our community, our community being black. And what I loved is that for the first time I was a part of a space that was unapologetically black focus. Um, also with the whole premise around emotional healing, supporting, et cetera. And I love that you called that into the space. I love how you do container at the beginning uh, of those sessions. And I was like, this is dope. Like I need to listen to YOLO. I need to record this and listen to it every morning as I just walk about society and community and other spaces like that. And so I'm saying all that to say, can you share a little bit about what that is? First of all, what's the purpose and goal of containing and um, what you do intentionally making it a black space? Yeah. Although it's open to other folks. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and some of our programs are open to other folks who are non-black and a lot of them aren't, right? So that's one piece of it as well. So container building and um, what you're referencing is like, for me as a facilitator holding space for folks, it is important to recognize that if we don't have a strong container to hold things, things get messy, 
right? Like, you know what I mean? Things are already going to swish and swash around. Things, gonna, But like when we have a container, they can swish and swash around in this container as opposed to it's just like now it's on my shoes. Now I'm mad because I just got a new air. Like, you know, all those pieces, right? <laughs> so the container building is really to establish that piece, to establish some understanding of who we are, but also to build a trust relationship with the people who are participating, right? So, you know, our container building starts off with things where we very clearly articulate. One, you know, um, African-American does not mean black in this space. Black holds a lot of different distinctions. It means Afro-Caribbean or Afro-Caribbean folks or people from the UK, people from Canada who come to our programs, that we need to make sure we are mindful of that. That black doesn't mean heterosexual cisgender man, that it also holding space for other um, people who show up in their blackness. And like one of the things I like to say to people when I, when I used to do in-person workshops, I would always say, and one thing may happen in a space, somebody's blackness may make you uncomfortable and isn't that a divine opportunity to expand the, mag the, the magnitude of who we are? Isn't that an opportunity, right? So like there'll be black trans folks and queer folks and non-binary people. Um, so we established that. And then we also established like getting people um, grounded in their bodies, right? Because we know that in this virtual space and even in the in-person spaces, you come into the workshop with all the anxiety. You're like, what's going to happen? What are they going to talk about? Who going to try to? And so there's oftentimes you're in your head and you're not really present what's going on with you physically. And so we often do a sacred pause moment where we invite people to kind of just scan their bodies, take a moment with their breath, right? Which is a radical practice for us Black folks because we're so disembodied. We're encouraged to be so disembodied, right? Um, and pushed to be disembodied, I would even say. And so we do that piece and then we can ask people, what are your, what are you feeling in this moment? So there's a lot of like, a lot of the curriculum is really in the container building, but it's really about building trust, establishing clarity about what our roles and our intentions are and understand that that is critical for us to be able to have a, a, a really loving and heal, healing center conversation, you know? And so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what the container building is. It's something that, um, we are very explicit about, very intentional about, you know, it looks different for different sessions, but um, it does help us be able to kind of come into the conversation in our, in our dignity and in our full selves. I love that, especially for our, our non-Black folk, they need that too, around here's how you enter into this space. Here's what you can do and here's what the hell you are not going to do. I forgot to mention that part. That part, that's one of my favorites. I forgot to mention that part because we do have a part where we say to our allies, we are grateful that you were in the room. Welcome. However, we want to be very clear. This is a space that centers Black lives. Any attempt to decentralize um, the focus from Black lives will be compassionately redirected. You are welcome to be here, but you are not welcome to center yourself. Right? That like, part. That really part. Clear, you know? <laughs> In other words, fall back and be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything, YOLO. <laughs> it is everything. It helps, it keeps it keeps people grounded. People know, okay, YOLO and Leroy, they 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 bought their life. Yes. <laughs> yes, and, <laughs> and yes. <laughs> I I love that. Um, because we don't get that in other spaces in that way. Mm. Um and or it gets decentered into something else and focusing on something else, even though the whole purpose to talk about blackness was to focus that, but then we start bringing in other stuff. I'm like, whoa, 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 we just went way over here. Um, so, so I love that piece. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk about some of, because I got introduced to, to being during the, the pandemic. So everything I know is virtual and 
the the workshops you all offer have been great and phenomenal. So talk a little bit about the different types of virtual things that you all offer. Yeah, um, so many things. So one of our popular groups during the pandemic, which actually came out of folks saying, hey, we need you to do this, is our event called HeartSpace. And you know, HeartSpace is essentially, it's a black only peer support space. And we have all kinds of folks coming in. We got people from the UK. I'd be like, we have, we really have a couple of people from the UK. It's, we're eight hours behind them. So they are really coming in late, um, who come to that space. And what it's really designed, it's just a space to check in. We do it. Sometimes we'll talk about healing and coping tools and strategies. Sometimes we just talk about the moment, what's going on and just kind of processing our feelings, right? But that group, since it started in March of last year, I think from March to, to November, it had like 580 people who had attended that space, right? So a lot of people come in there just needed to feel connected to folks, you know, and just check in and vent with like-minded people who are also invested in their emotional wellness and learn from folks. Because even though me and Natalie um, hold the space, people come in there and teach us things all the time. We'd be like, what? Like we learn things through each other, which is really amazing. So our space is every two weeks um, and that happens regularly. Of course, we have Black Masculinity Reimagined, which Leroy is the leader, the leader of. Um, and Black Masculinity Reimagined really comes out of um, my experience of the work and wanting a program that addressed um, the ways in which Black men and masculine folks showed up harmful, harmfully in our communities, but addressed it from a place of understanding that Black men were often suffering from trauma and stress and duress that was creating that, that harm. Right, and I think I, I missed that in a lot of programs that I remember being a part of and doing. I'd be like, yeah, okay, we need to focus on black men stopping harm. But we also, there's also this, this, this a part of how they are harmed that it never gets held and attended to in a way that um, holds both of those things together, right? So black masculinity reimagined is really that. Um, we have, of course, our other workshop, Decompress, which Natalie leads is a writing workshop with writing prompts, super popular. Um, we also have North Star, which we just launched. North Star is actually um, our monthly gathering of Black mental health practitioners, therapists, social workers, yoga teachers, anybody who's doing Black wellness work. We come and check in, support each other, but also resource each other and let people know what's going on this in different cities so we can kind of connect and mobilize. So that's something we're really excited about. And um, then we have like our funding, our fund, uh, fund initiatives, like, you know, our parent support fund just opened up and just closed down because we got too many requests, right? So our parent support fund gives um, economic support to Black parents who are either living with a mental condition or who their children are, are supporting children who are living with a mental condition. And then we give um, stipends of $250 to $500 to folks because um, we recognize in this moment, that's a lot. You uh, Some coins could help, right? Like, you know, the economic anxiety is very real. That part. You know, and so um, so we have those kind of funds. We have those funds that we offer. And of course, our central program is our Black Mental Health Peer Support Program, which we're doing virtually. Um, we do over a month. It's five weeks that you meet for through two hours um, to do that program virtually, which used to be in person for two days. So we had to modify it. Got it. There were a lot of things that we couldn't do. Like we used to have a twerking circle. We can't do a twerk circle. Come on, twerk. But, you know, so we had to figure those things out, but we work it out. So those are some of our programs and some of the work that we do. Um, and of course, we have our Black Virtual Wellness Directory, which has therapists and yoga teachers and other folks listed in it and other pieces. Yeah. And for those who are probably asking now, while they're listening to this, how much does this cost? Is it free? Like, how, how can I participate? Yeah. 
So all of our programs have um, free and donation-based tickets. You know, we also have people who want to pay the full price. It's like, look, we'll, we'll give you an option. Give us the coins. We're going to take it. But we get funding to offer heart space and those pieces for free for a great number of people. And that's really important for us, right? Because we're trying to supplement people's wellness when we know people either need some, a lot of people come to heart space and be like, I need this on top of my therapy. We're like, great, that's perfect. So people are like, I can't afford to go therapy. That I was me, space, right? You know, I, I, mean, I did, I did, I came to it um, election night. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cause I'm like, I had therapy, but I, I need my peoples. Like I need to be in community with my peoples right now. So that really spoke to me and, and gave me life in so many ways that evening that after that, I was cool. You know, the next day I was cool. I was like, oh, where were y'all at four years ago? But you know, <laughs> it, it was, it was good. <laughs> you so, should, uh, you should really share resources there. No, to Alan. I should say, what do you mean resources? Resources. There? I didn't know about that. I could have used that on election night. Yeah, you know, I saw I, I saw it coming up on my Instagram feed, right? And I was like, okay, I'm gonna try to make it to that. And then my schedule, I didn't have anything scheduled. And I was like, I'm about to pop on in. And, and that's that's how I did it. It was just like, boom, organic, it just flowed. Um, it's really cool too, because I love Heart Space because we have so many different types of black folks to come through there. Yes. Like we'll have, we'll have, um, we'll have an elder who came through and she was like, I'm on and I'm listening to y'all. Like we're like, she was like in Alabama somewhere. She was like, I'm in my seventies, but I heard about this. Somebody told me I should call them like, come on in. Then we have like the young activist who like, I just came from the rally and I need to talk to somebody. Like, okay, come on in here. So it's just, it's just really beautiful. The diversity of people from professionally, from my age, from like all these pieces that come in that space. Yeah. It, and it feels safe and intimate. Mm. right even though there's folks across you know the country out of the country etc it feels still feels intimate and um like 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 you got a, a golden ticket you know if you're in there like oh okay this is look i gotta found out on the on, on the low you know <laughs> this little secret secret society that that is great so i try to share with with as many people that i know um who who want it and and will benefit from it and that's wonderful because I think that this is exactly what we were hoping to do and that this podcast is connect people to different uh, resources like this because uh, of, you know, everything that was happening in the pandemic. I mean, don't get me wrong, we needed it pre-pandemic, but, you know, me, myself being a mental health provider, felt myself uh, getting a little, you know, uh, just needing uh, more than just you know therapy with everything that was going on um and and also having to be that person to respond to everybody who was outraged about the george floyd thing uh, murder so um i love hearing about what what you have to offer and what beam has to offer for people of color and particularly black folks um, and even black males because um been a rough year it really, really has. And I and I do worry about, you know, our practitioners holding space because it, it is a lot to be that person in the community that is kind of called on, right? You know, I was, a lot of um, our practitioners talk about, you know, everybody, because they know you got the social work degree or the counseling degree, they're like, oh, let me call, let me call Alan, let me call Jared. It's like, okay, that gets a lot over a time, right? You know, 
And then like there's often a lot of folks tend to struggle with guilt because they know that all the pain and harm. So it can be difficult to kind of hold boundaries with those with folks, you know? But um, yeah, I that's one of the reasons the North Star is so critical, but also why we have to really support ourselves as practitioners and be in community with each other who support each other because we are, in some ways we have the regular load, but then we got all the load of all the other stuff we're holding, which is a totally different emotional load to carry, right? And vicarious stress and trauma are very real. Absolutely. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, your own personal journey? Yeah, you know, you can share whatever you're comfortable with, but just wondering about, you know, you and mental health and what really even drew you into this arena. You know, if I was to summarize it, I would say, to be honest, I grew up in a community of folks who were suffering and having a really difficult time with navigating racism, classism, poverty, um, the crack epidemic, all kinds of things, right? And seeing that and then going to college and then reading works of bell hooks and audrey lord and other folks made me realize that things could be different if we had skills tools and resources to be able to show up differently and support each other and i think that recognition through school through my education kind of implored me to think more and more about what can I create in the world that gives us a different way of being and relating to our pain that minimizes the pain we create for other folks. And that really is the catalyst for BEAM. Everything that BEAM does is really about building skills. Because I recognize, and I think about that quote from Jay-Z where he says, we never had the tools, you know what I mean? Like, And I think about that all the time because I'm like, my, my father, my mother, my, my grandmother, they didn't have those tools. Those tools were not shared with them. They didn't, they, and there was not space created to self-reflect in that way or to process or that pain and that hurt was not validated. And so communities that I was a part of growing up, you know, suffered because of that. And so I wanted to make an institution or to do work that helped alleviate that suffering by uplifting those tools, uplifting those strategies and those skills, you know? Um, and that's really kind of how I came to like be in this work, why I care so passionately about it. I just know that we can love with even more dignity. I know that we can be in conflict with even more dignity. I know that we can be resourced better than we are resourced. You know, I know, I, and, I, and I feel very strongly about that vision and all my life is just like, how can I help make that possible? What can I do? You know, cause I've seen it for myself. I've seen myself grow and be able to be in conflict and differently than I was 10 years ago, right? Or be, or be in my own self wellness practice differently than I was before. And um, I want that for more and more of our folks. I love that. that. That's definitely something that we need to embrace and continue to, to do for ourselves, but also for each other. If there's nothing else that we've learned coming out of this, out of this pandemic and everything that has happened is, is how are we showing up for self? How are we showing up for our family and kin? And how are we showing up for our communities? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And how can we? And how can how much of how we are showing up is just based off of what we've seen done for so long? That part. That we, and that that we've kind of become numb to the pain that produces for folks. How do we develop other strategies of showing up that feel different, but may create more 
um, connection and less isolation, particularly think about black men and masculine folks, right? Because so many of the narratives that people who are masculine in this country receive really create an emotional isolation. Like, you know what I mean? It, create, it creates like, you know, in this, this, the myth of invulnerability. Yeah. We see the mental health distress, we see the inflicted pain on other people because of that, right? So, but it's all because of the ideology and the, yes. the, and the um, those belief systems that are really, really killing us in a lot of ways. Very true, very true. How do you all see that in your work? I'm curious. Say it again. How do you all see that in your work showing up in our masculine? Well, I was just, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, my work on black male grief and in the, the yearning for, um, to be seen, uh, the yearning to be uh, honored emotionally um, and, and being in connection and congruence with what I feel internally and being able to have that expressed outwardly, uh, regardless of the expectation and all that stuff that gets put on. Um, it's something that I love when I get to experience it with a black man, black masculine, folk um, in sessions with them virtually now, because all of my stuff is virtual. Um, and I never take it for granted because it's been a long time coming for their journey yeah. and their process. So it feels like they're liberated, emotionally speaking, psychologically speaking. I'm, I'm so sure, like, um, I mean, there's so many components to just like, you know, and I, I have your workbook, by the way, which I need to spend more time with. I did order your workbook. Yes, let me know how it is for you. <laughs> but, um, there's so many components to the ways in which Black men experience grief in this country. And one of the things that I've always been curious about and continue to explore in my own life and other folks is the ways in which we grieve sometimes um, when we don't have the presence of a father, that part. Um, of a, care, a male or masculine caretaker who could like affirm us in a certain way. And you know, it's interesting, I think about all the ways in which I see that unprocessed grief show up in rage and hurt, right? Um, one of the things I used to often say and my early counseling experiences, which seemed really super evident to me, was a lot of the men that I experienced, um, I, would, I worked with, who were so violently homophobic. It felt so deeply connected to this. Um, I used to say there was one client I, I was almost like, my, my read of him was, he was resentful of the, the affection that he saw men have with the Black men have with each other because of the, black, the affection he couldn't have with his father. And because he didn't have a framework to understand affection between men that wasn't about sexuality. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's what I think a lot, a lot of brothers struggle with. It's like, oh, I really want this connection. I want to hug Jared. I want to be close to Alex, but I'm not gay. Well, it's like, because of the ways in which sexuality has been constructed in our world, people think they're like, well, no, there is no, you got to be gay. That's the only way you can do that. that. Yeah. There's, no, there's, no, there's no spectrum here. So a lot of men who long for that connection with brothers, male friends and colleagues uh, shut that down and are grieving that desire for real connection, like this rooted in friendship, not buddies, because buddies are just like topical. It's like, I don't really talk about nothing with you, but we buddies versus a friendship that is like, hey, I'm hurting, homie. Like, I need to cry. Can I come and call yes. you and go through this? And so there's a lot of grieving of the absence of that and a lot of frustration and anger when you see that represented in kind of like, you know, gay or queer relationships. Um, are also, and, and also there's a piece about the grief of like, that was beaten into me, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you know, that was beaten into me that this was to be the undesirable thing. I see it, I'm triggered and I'm gonna do what I would what happened to me because that's what I've been trained to do. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, one of um, the folks I used to work with, I remember he told, he used to talk, well, we worked, we worked through this piece where he at once saw his son in the kitchen with his, with his wife and the son kind of had his hand on his hip and this kind of like, you know, stance that um, he perceived as very feminine. And he talks about how like two or three minutes later, he blacks out and next thing you know, he sees his son on the floor and he's screaming and yelling. And so this is happens, his wife gets him to pull up or whatever. Apparently he likes hit his son and he kind of blacked out. And it took a while to kind of process this. And this is a community forum space. And then he started to realize that like, that's what happened to me for years. Whenever I would put my hands on my hips or do something that was considered feminine with a lip wrist, my uncle or my, my father would come and pop me in the face. He said, and I was like, he said, and I was like five, six, seven, like he said, I was really young and they were like huge to me, right? So it was very jarring and I didn't understand what I was doing wrong. And I thought, and, I, and like, that is just one kind of tale that shows the trauma that kind of separates yes. back and forth through the through generations and the body. Like even the, like the restrictions, like I can't even move my body in a certain way because that of the part. way it be read and understood. And you know, black men already have so much policing and trauma around the body. Around yes, the, yes. Walking outside in a hoodie, if you got a if you got a beard, if you got like your hair this way, like you know, this all this body trauma. And so then you add those dimensions, it creates just more isolation, more grief that we have to begin to unpack for our healing and our wellness, you know. Everything which you said, YOLO. Every every single thing um is true. And so one of the things I say is um, black men have learned that they cannot express themselves, their grief. And, and what we need to do when we're holding the spaces is, is allowing black men to traverse their grief and whatever that looks like, however that comes, comes to play out and honor it. Yes. And that's the emphasis with, with the workbook is really honoring how black men show up around their grief and trauma and exploring it. And that it takes a lot of unlearning, not just with black men, with people of all genders. For sure. Right. I think that like, um, I have not seen the conversation held very well, but I mean, it is a conversation that we need to learn to hold well, that many black women are just not comfortable with black men as emotions, right? And that there is this kind of like conflicting narratives we see in black communities where black women are like, I want my husband to be more emotional, but not that emotional. Now I don't know how to deal with it. And it's like, wait, hold on. What do you want? Like there's this, this kind of like, um, I think um, one of my colleagues did an interview recently and she really wrapped, explained it better than I am doing right now. She said, it's kind of like this. I want this patriarchy because I've been so seduced in a, by it for so long, but then I don't want the patriarchy because it's so terrible in other ways. Right. Yes. And so, um, Leaning into and learning how to hold Black men's emotionality is something we all have to practice and learn. And it's not just Black men, it is Black women, it is Black non-binary folks, queer folks, all of us, right? Yes. Um, Because I've definitely been in spaces where they've been multi-gender space, Black spaces, and a brother who nobody has ever seen cry, who looks kind of hard, starts crying, people have no idea what to do. They like lose, like, whoa, what is he crying for? Okay, you, you know, like people, really get uncomfortable and um we have to become more comfortable with let, letting black men express their that part you know that part i, I said i'm gonna make my t-shirt let a brother breathe and bereave yeah yes allow and, for the bereavement process and uh and brothers and masculine folks have to learn how to breathe and emotionally express 
but also not make that labor principally only black women and feminine. Right. So that means that how do I get comfortable? How do we get comfortable with crying to Alan and not just to your partner who's a woman? Like, you know what I mean? Or like, yeah. like we got to move that because like women spend so much time navigating the emotional labor of men by the virtue of being in this world, right? The safety of being around men, all those pieces, right? What does it mean to create communities where black men um, emotionally support each other to help to help link the uh, pull apart that sense of isolation? Yes. And it's so powerful too because um. I see how that transforms communities when I've seen that happen. Like even with children, like you know, I've had I've had um, people's kids come to me and be like, you know, when my dad started your program, he was so different. He's so different now. It's almost like I know him now. I didn't know who he was. He was just kind of stoic thing. Yeah, he got and to like, show up fully. Right, he didn't show up emotionally, but now he's like, how you feeling? No fear. How you feeling? And she's like, what? What are you talking about? I don't know. Like you know, we gotta figure that out. It's a new muscle. Well, you just answered what I was about to ask. How? Sure. Have people been responding to that? Because um, I, yeah, I, that's amazing. Uh, so often it's just you know, some of the uh, black male friends that I have, I've recognized that it, it is like pulling teeth and I find them to be, you know, even more progressive and, and not necessarily from as much trauma um, growing up with that trauma, but I'm recognizing that it's just a generational thing for us. It's just passed, simply it's just passed down. Um, it was survival for so long uh, and not knowing how to break through it and wanting to be there for, for people, but you know, trying to be a friend and not a therapist. Um, and it's difficult because, uh, you know, not crossing that boundary, we, we just didn't have the tools to say, look, you know, if you need to cry, cry, you know. It's so, it's so important. I love what you lifted up. It's so important that we acknowledge that um, the John Henryism in our community, the patriarchy in our community is really a coping strategy, right? Yeah. I mean, like if you think yeah. about it, um, and I've written about this, it's like this, come, this, this emotional stoicism that we see in our communities comes out of the fact we had to be, because guess what? If I'm outside, this white man spits in my face, I better be emotionally stoic with him. When he calls me that name in front of my family here is out here, I have to be, I have to suppress that feeling yes. of survival to live, right? Mm -hmm. So that that particular pattern is adaptive. That is an adaptive, like you know what I mean? That is yes. like so I can survive. Mm -hmm. However, I think what happens is it's been globalized. You know what I mean? So like, and it's like, this is this is contextual. Like, you know what I mean? And that context doesn't exist in these other scenarios. We don't have to do that, but we don't, um, we haven't had that conversation to heal and move through that in that way. And I think that like, even when I think about like, you know, some of the things that um, I have people talk about in, um, you know, in black LGBT communities about black men being homophobic, some of those things are also perceived as protective, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, and when you talk to black older black men, like, well, I didn't want to be feminine. I had to beat out him because he might get killed out there. That's there's a protective element to that, right? Yeah. It's not just so sorely rooted only in the fear of their son being with another man. It's also rooted in I'm really scared of what will happen to you in these streets if I don't get you to toughen up because it is dangerous out there. Mm -hmm. So we have to hold both of those. We can't escape both of those. And I think what happens sometimes is that we escape completely the fact that, like, no. That intention was protective. That that intention, while may had a different impact, came from a place of them loving and caring for your. Yes. Yeah. So how do we hold that even when it, it terrorized us? 
very much I, I think the Kevin Hart situation right although ignorant that tweet to tweet that um, I think that that came from that and him being shorter as well I can only imagine uh, that was the last thing that they wanted him to be was feminine short and feminine would have been a death sentence for him growing up and it only makes sense didn't deal with it gonna do it to his son absolutely yeah. and um you know yeah so absolutely like it does come out of that fear it comes out of that fear of the unknown it comes out of that fear wanting the best for survival knowing that like what happens to black queer children in this country right like mm -hmm. you know um, that fear is legitimate and that it can be, of course, it's often deeply connected to other kind of um, value statements around like, you know, someone's value based off their sexual orientation, but it's also deeply rooted in those pieces too. I always wonder like what would happen if black men didn't feel like for a day, I, I want to do a skit where it's like a day where black men feel like they didn't have to, pro to pr um, protect or project being heterosexual, how would you show up differently? And I think that like a lot of black men would be able to be able, not only be affectionate with their partners of all genders, but how would you show up with your children differently? How would you show up? Like, you know what I mean? What would yes, that be? Yes. But so much of it is like, I gotta be straight appearing, even for gay men and queer men, a lot of that is that there, right? You know what I mean? And it's such a constant anxiety. I think I tell you how often we all see these, these conversations where they're like, you know, I ain't wearing no pink because that's threatening my man. And it's like, the color pink, mm -hmm. Is threatening your fabric of your manhood. Right? <laughs> you got some other questions. Like it's like you know, it's, it's such a bizarre imagery. It's like the color pink is coming to attack your manhood, and that's that's all it took. Yes. That's all it took. Yeah. Like, what is your what is your identity built in that's so fragile? What and what would it take to build your identity on something so concrete that it cannot be trans transformed or impacted by somebody else? Like even emasculation, which as a concept really bothers me. I always tell people, emasculation is built on this idea that there is something masculine about you that can be taken away or by outside actions. Mm -hmm. And if masculinity is inherently to you, if femininity is inherent to you, there is nothing nobody can do outside of me that can take away that. Now, the dominant, when people say emasculation, what they mean is you're not letting me perform power and control in the ways that I would part. understand a man to be able to. I'm like, but like that ain't got it. But like, you, if, if it's inherent to you, it don't matter what happens outside of you. You know what I mean? You have it and you, nobody can take it away. Mm -hmm. But if it's all based on this kind of fragile performances, which aren't real, then you're always gonna be losing it. It's always gonna be up for grabs because it's not rooted in anything. It's that rooted part. in mythology and it's not the fullness of who you are. And you know, I think about a big part of black masculine reimagine is getting people to think about how do you build an identity that isn't contingent upon somebody else performing another role out there in the world? Like, mm -hmm. you know. You ask men, like, what is masculinity? Well, it's not femininity. Well, hold on now. You can't define yourself in relationship to that. What is what you are? Yes. Yes. And, you know? and having those conversations like that, like, like you're bringing up and like you're having is important. How, how do we continue in such a way that allows for Black men, Black masculine folk to show up fully in all of who they are unapologetically um, and then how that then gives to other folks and other communities and other relationships. Permission, permission to, do, to do those things, right? And I think it's also about, you know, when I say this, this is not a popular idea and I tell people all the time, I'm like, all of your ideas about black manhood are racist and are deeply rooted in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Black people 
in this country learned what it means to be a black brood, a black masculine or a person from white folks. That part. So when you when you put out that stereotype that you know niggas gotta be like this, that all that's racist. Yeah. All that's racist. That part. Because racism is taught black men and black people abroad, but black men specifically, you don't get the full range of your human emotional being. Not even you're, a little you're, bit. You're, uh, you're, you're barely a step up from a monkey, from an ape. And so we internalize that and we start saying, you know, niggas don't do that. It's like, well, hold on, you a human. Mm-hmm. Who told you that? That's a, like, we don't, and I think we've been taught to think that, like, realize that, like, these are some deep racist concepts that we perpetuate on black Yes. About how black men should emotionally show up. And they're, and they're created by white folks. Like the same, like, it's, it's, it, 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 it angers me to no extent that we can be so hypercritical of the ways in which white people have created blackness and and tried to market that to us, but we stop when it comes to gender. We're like, no, but male and women, that is exactly the way the master said it. It's like, wait, hold on now. This we did why we trust this dude now. We should yeah. trust this dude. Yes. <laughs> all of that, all of that, YOLO. I can talk to you forever. Being used too. Yes, religion, right? Yes, yeah, so mixed in with that. that. That's how it's oh, that's how it becomes acceptable, right? Because yeah. it gets okay if it's under the religion. <clears throat> yeah, and like there's so many layers to religion in our communities. Like, you know, I always tell people that um one thing I will never I, I we, we must always hold is that we will not be here, a lot of us, if it wasn't for people's our generation's faith in Christianity, largely yeah. the, the yes. traditions in this country. And so I always want to hold that when we offer critiques of the way the church operates, critique of the theology and the ways in which those frameworks are set up. But um, yeah, a lot of those ideas As we are wrapping up, YOLO, is there anything that you would like to announce or plug or tell our audience about? Oh my goodness, so much going on. Okay, so like check out our website, beam.community backslash events. Um, to see upcoming events. We have a lot of good stuff coming up for February that I can't announce just yet, but keep your eyes peeled there. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna check out our website. And, make sure, and if you're looking for um, a therapist or practitioner, or yourself, are you, you yourself are a therapist or practitioner, please add yourself to our Black Virtual Wellness Directory. Check it out, super easy to access and search. Um, yeah, and just um, check us out, give us a visit. Wonderful, we'll, we'll, we'll add all that information on uh our website as well under this uh, this pot or this episode. All right, we just want to thank you so much for yes. being on this episode. What a pleasure! Thank you all. It thank you all for everything. Me. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all for having me. And please do share with me. I'll make sure we share with our folks. We share the last one with our newsletter and folks too. So we definitely will share it as well. Thank you all for holding the space that y'all hold and for taking care of the folks y'all take care of and and yourselves and your families. Much appreciated. Likewise. Um, Thank you everyone for joining us and uh, we'll see you next episode.